on this episode, the most dangerous cars on the road, Nissan makes the same mistake as Ford and Mitsubishi, and Subaru wants to give you a better BRZ. And we bring back the street judge, where I will preside over the question, are M cars with extra numbers real M cars? Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast, and follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91 Octane. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go right under the hood. If I were to ask you what the most dangerous cars on the road are, I think you'd get it right on the first shot. The IIHS's latest driver death rates highlight the dangers of the Ford Mustang, among other cars, right? But the Ford Mustang is the car uh, in terms of danger at least in the memory world, but American muscle cars with high horsepower and sort of this hot rod uh, marketing behind it are amongst the deadliest vehicles on the road. And this is both for the drivers and the people in the other vehicles or on the street. So according to recent calculations by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, Six of the 21 vehicles with the highest driver rates uh, for the 2020 model year were variants of the Camaro, the Challenger, the Charger, and the Mustang. To literally no one's surprise. Um, The article goes in to discuss how uh, a lot of these companies' marketing has a lot to do with it in terms of the image and what these cars are for, but... I mean, with the exception of Dodge, I mean, Dodge really goes in on like hooning and wild driving. I think they have a, had a chief, chief donut officer. I don't know if they still do, but they had that going on for a little while, maybe last year or maybe the year prior to that. So they're known for that. Um, but still, I mean, to drive them so recklessly to end up on a list. And I mean, there are six of the 21 vehicles. They're high up on that list. They're in like the top six or so somewhere there and it's all models of each it's all trims uh so there are like hellcats and scat packs uh but there's also the v6 models for both you know the ford mustang and the dodge cars so it it spans the full gamut they're all muscle cars on this list and the 18 of the 23 vehicles with the lowest driver rates were minivans and suvs um and luxury vehicles which is not a surprise um it looks like the most dominant uh performance on this uh on this list is going to be the sort of modern muscle cars that are the challenger the charger and the mustang not a reputation you want to hold on to but it's something that the numbers are saying and some uh dodge cars with excessive high driver death rates also rank amongst the worst performers in terms of other driver deaths which means that the dodge cars are among the cars that are driven most aggressively so they are responsible for more deaths outside of the car that it's uh you know that's that's being piloted um which makes sense I mean, we've seen video after video of wrecks at these takeovers. I mean, that might contribute too. 
I know most of the things we see are not people dying. I don't wish that on anyone. But, man, it's close with some of these cars just kind of barreling down and swinging around and launching people, you know, 20 feet across the street. It's just not a good look. So these cars uh, apparently are getting a bit of a bad rep in terms of some of these studies. Uh, and the image and marketing of muscle cars is sort of what's being associated with sort of uh, the gravity of this and kind of what makes it the worst. Um, but I don't necessarily believe that because, I mean, BMW's got the ultimate driving machine and it's amongst some of the you know lowest rated cars in this regard. I mean, it could be that some of these luxury cars have a lot more safety features and therefore there's less likely to have deaths, even though there are accidents. But, I mean, most manufacturers in some way participate in marketing their cars as performance vehicles. So it's hard to believe that that is going to be a main driver because it's consistent across the board. I think uh, maybe it's the power to price point that probably has more to do with what's going on here, right? I mean, you can get pretty good power in Camaros, Challengers, Chargers, and Mustangs for not a lot of money anymore. And these are 2020 models, um, and they're still expensive, but relatively speaking to the other cars on the list, they're not as expensive. I mean, you can probably get one for thirty, forty thousand. 40000 uh, you know, a, a V8, any version of those cars, versus costing you double that in, say, a BMW or a Mercedes or an Audi, if you are so inclined. But um, Dodge is now closing their order books for the Challenger and the Charger, so they will soon fall off this list. So this study just came out in time uh, for Dodge to say, hey, you have until the end of July to order your Challengers and Chargers because we're not going to make them anymore. Um, that's literally eight days, Matt, made less than that uh, since you're hearing this podcast, but it's there's a week left in ordering these cars and then we'll never see them again. I mean, we will continue to see them. There are so many of them on the road that we will absolutely continue to see them, but they just won't be available for purchase brand new. But anyway, let's get to our next headline. You know what doesn't contribute to driver deaths? Speed limits, apparently. So the AAA, American Automobile Association, conducted a five-year study on the impact of changes in posted speed limits on traffic safety. And it's pretty interesting what they came up with. The study found that lowering speed limits led to an increase in number of speed tickets issued, speeding tickets issued, while raising speed, speed limits resulted in fewer speeding violations. It's sort of obvious. I guess you could assume that, right? If you put more strict speed limits... Um, you know, over the span of five years, of course, there's going to be more speeding tickets available to hit. If you increase that uh, um, maximum speed limit, then you are going to have less tickets to give out because more people are going to, you know, fall into the into the gap that uh, maximum mile gap that uh, most people drive in. So it makes sense. But where it gets more interesting, more interesting is that the study did not provide conclusive evidence that raising speed limits increased the frequency of car crashes, nor did it support lowering speed limits to reduce to reduce 
car crash accidents. Um, it's basically saying that sort of moving the speed limit is arbitrary, right? It doesn't really put an impact on the amount of accidents that are occurring on the road. It's a little strange. Um, I mean, reading both of these, I think what you can cl conclude is that um, regardless of what the speed limit is, people are generally going to drive a very similar speed, whatever that may be. And out here, I mean, it's like 80 miles an hour, I would say, is probably like the average that I'm seeing on the freeways. On the streets, it varies. But 80 miles per hour is pretty consistent on the highways uh, for the most part, um, at least in the faster lanes, right? In the slower lanes, you're getting closer to speed limit, but people are going to drive how they drive. I mean, over the span of five years, probably over the span of maybe, let's say, 25 years, you could probably teach people to drive a little slower or drive a little faster, right? You accumulate enough tickets, people get enough tickets, then naturally people are going to start driving slower to avoid getting that. And with enough people doing that, it will sort of drive um, drive the change through the masses in terms of slowing down or speeding up, right, if we do vice versa. So the AAA reviewed existing literature on speed versus safety, and they collaborated with the IIHS that we just discussed to do a thorough analysis of 12 different rural and urban freeways in five different states. So it wasn't like this wasn't a very limited study. There was a lot involved, a lot of data involved in coming to the conclusions that they came up with, which is pretty good, right? They spanned a lot of five different states, 12 different highways, either urban or rural, to get a really good feel of what's going on. Um, and ultimately it highlighted that altering speed limits by small amounts, let's say five miles an hour, did not noticeably affect anything in terms of crashes, right? Nothing changed. Five miles per hour is negligible. However, changing speed limits did have a significant impact on the number of speed violations as we discussed. I mean, that makes sense, right? Especially over the span of five years, it's just not enough time. I think, to change driving sentiment. There's just too many people. There's too many people that have learned to drive this way their whole lives. I mean, think of how hard it is to break a driving habit, right? Whatever it may be and how much we actually drive. Um, so we're sort of building our habits, our driving habits into ourselves every day. Um and contrary to the belief that raising speed limits leads to a higher average speed, as I stated earlier, the study found that uh, the speed increase was n almost negligible. Um, I think people are generally going to drive how they drive region to region, right? Um, like I said, out here, it's like 80 miles per hour might be slower in other states. Uh, I think it depends on how open the freeways are, you know, five laner versus a two laner, uh, you're going to drive different speeds, uh, but it looks like people are just going to drive how they're going to drive. But, um, the conclusion is that in theory, right, if we were to give it, be given a no speed limit, for the most part, people would drive the average. So if we're talking 80 miles per hour out here, the study would indicate 
that people are generally going to drive generally going to drive that speed. Now, are there going to be outliers, right? Yes, there are. There's going to be that one knucklehead trying to hit 200 miles per hour in whatever car they just boosted and tuned, right? It's probably a Honda. Uh, and in that case, that's where we get in trouble. But for the most part, it seems that speed limits really only help the issuing of speeding tickets. That's ultimately what the study showed, right? That you can manipulate the volume of speed limit tickets or speed violations that you can generate per highway just by altering the speed limit. And that's really the only thing it controls. Everything else generally stays the same. Now, if you change the speed limit by like 30 miles per hour, maybe we would have... Um, a bigger difference, but it didn't really seem to have an impact, at least in like the 20 mile per hour range, which is pretty significant. Um, I think it's wild that, you know, it's just, it's sort of like the war on drugs that it's not working, right? Speed limits is the war on speed and it generally doesn't work. Um, I mean, people are incentivized to drive safely by the mere fact that they want to stay alive. So a speed limit, I guess you could be argued, yeah, it's there for safety, absolutely. And there's going to be people that violate that and violate it frequently and are reckless and are dangerous on the road. And that's probably why they exist. But for the most part, people are going to drive around the average and the amount of tickets they get will be solely driven by where the speed limit sits as compared to that average. That's crazy to me. That's crazy that you could, you know, we need more speeding tickets next year. Oh, let's uh, lower the speed limit by five miles per hour, and that'll probably give us a 15% increase. Now, the 15% is just completely made up. I don't know what the increase actually is. They don't really go into that detail, but we do know there's an increase. Now, let's get into our next headline. The EV house of cards continues to crumble. Now, I'm not you know, over the past few episodes, I've been talking about uh, EV and its demise, and I'm not anti-EV at all. I'm going to say that right now. But this is what's happening in the interest industry. Across the board, the inventory they're holding on to is increasing um, by extreme amounts. Last week, we talked about the uh, decrease in sales and earnings that they're, all these companies are going through. And now Ford has reduced the prices for its electric F-150 Lightning, which is that truck that they unveiled and said it was going to be the uh, a game changer in terms of trucks. They're going to beat the Tesla Cybertruck and coming out. And they ran into supply issues, gave the truck to some you know famous people that they wanted to have their hands on him. And that's where it ended. And then they increased the price and everyone just lost interest. I think no one really at that point, no one was really interested in buying the car because it, when it came out, the idea was we were going to have an affordable EV truck with utility. Then it came out. There were issues with it not being able to tow any meaningful distance. The battery would drain. If it's towing, they increased the price. There were issues with uh, supply, and so the hype just kind of died down. It didn't really sell a lot, and so there's a lot of them sitting on the lots. Now, Ford is saying that they're 
decreasing the price because they've been successful in boosting production and lowering battery costs. Maybe. Tesla reduced the prices of their cars some months ago, maybe a few months, maybe a couple months ago. And I think that incentivizes other companies too. But honestly, if they figured out their production issues and lowered their battery costs, I think they'd pocket that before they'd actually reduced uh, the cost of the truck unless the truck wasn't selling, which seems to be the case. At least the numbers support that. Prices for some of the least expensive versions of the Lightning will decrease by nearly 10000 and all versions, including the top-line Platinum trim, will drop by at least $6,000 um, from the March pricing levels. Um, so across the board, top to bottom on that truck, you're going to at least save $6,000, uh, which is pretty significant. That $10,000 increase on the least expensive version puts that truck at starting about fifty k which is pretty competitive. Now, what the capabilities are of that truck, I don't know. I don't know what features it would come with necessarily. Um, but for an EV truck, brand new, you know, uh, coming from a major OEM, that's pretty good, 50K. I mean, I think that's pretty sure that's what you're paying for like a Tesla Model 3, maybe less now. And... Uh, it isn't going taking it down to sort of the initial price that they released it at. That's the unfortunate part because they have raised the price multiple times since 2021 when it, when it debuted, which is wild to me that it's already two years old. That's crazy. It feels like yesterday they were announcing it. Now, they have been working on increasing production, um, and they've been upgrading their factories because they want to triple their output output by fall, which I'm skeptical. I don't know. I mean, maybe they know something we don't, which makes sense, right? Professionally, they have to know. They have to be able to forecast how many of these things are actually going to sell. But with inventories just kind of sitting there for a lot of EVs right now, I don't know that it makes sense to triple your output by fall. Maybe they're, they already have some orders that they need to fulfill, and therefore tripling doesn't really mean that much because they're not making that many. But I don't know. We'll see. But uh, this has been their priority now. Um, they want to increase production of the Lightning and other Ford EVs uh, to continue their path into the EV stardom right the the most expensive version of the truck is going to be ninety two thousand, uh down from ninety eight thousand, which is still a lot i mean that's just a lot to me for a truck i'm sure you truck guys out there probably don't think so because i think that's where my opinion is coming from right like if i'm going to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a car i'm probably going to go porsche i'm probably going to make it a fun car right i don't want to spend six figures on a truck just it's not my thing but a truck is strictly strictly utility for me it's not something that i can cruise in and i know there are people that cruise in trucks and to them this might make sense but to me it really doesn't now let's move into our next headline this is a bit of a change of pace just want to show our respect to the community two people were killed in a crash during a sport car club of america scca 
Pro Solo Autocross event in Washington. This is a bit of a PSA, too. The victims were SCCA members Amber Jorgensen and Des Toops. They were 50 and 61 years old, respectively. And the incident occurred uh, when the car actually continued past the finish line and struck a person and then ended up in a concrete barrier. Uh, the event was canceled immediately, of course. Um, they were both experienced uh, autocrossers, so it's an unfortunate, unfortunate loss. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a serious condolences to the families. Um, it sucks when you lose, you know, people in the automotive space, the motorsport space, and it sort of reminds us, you know, how dangerous this can be, right? It's sometimes we take that for granted. And I don't think, you know, it's not something you discuss a lot. Um, I mean, it's not something you really want to discuss in the track anyway, but, you know, I feel like really safety isn't the glamorous side of motorsport and therefore you don't really consider it um, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you it's it's not a fancy turbo. It's not, um, you know, fast lap times. It's not cool parts. So you don't really discuss it a lot. But I have had friends. A lot of friends talk about, you know, let's let's put a fire suppression system in there. Let's make sure we've got quality um you know fire retardant clothing and good helmets and such so we have had those conversations but it's nice to often remind yourself of you know the dangers and the uh safety extends past the equipment because what happened here according to some sources the driver had a heart attack and uh got stuck on the throttle redline it in second gear and just barreled down the finish line into a wall um, and took a person on the way. Um, so some of that safety stuff is also staying healthy, right? If we want to drive for a long time, which I know we all do, and I'm, you know, I'm, I need to take my own advice as well here. It's, you know, let's, let's make sure that we're right physically fit right to run these cars and not be a danger to ourselves and others as well because in an instant at a track even though it's the safest play to, place to do it and the only place you should be doing it it can be very dangerous so honestly deep sorrow for the losses here it's uh it's never good you know we hope the families are able to heal through kind of the memories of these folks but you know autocross Time trials, road racing, drifting, really all motorsport is very, very dangerous. And I think it's uh, it's important to remind yourself of that every once in a while. I know it's something we tend to block out whenever we're on the track, but we should do everything we can to prepare ourselves so that we don't have to think about it when we're out on track. So sad news, a bit of a change of pace, but I think it's important to recognize and show our respects to the members of the community, you know, that we lose, um, especially at the grassroots level, right? That is, it's the most passionate level, arguably, right? The most passionate level of motorsport because you're not earning any money, right? You're really strictly doing it for the love of it. And so when you lose some folks, um, it definitely, definitely hits hard. Now, let's move on. GM now doesn't need to wait 
for their cars to break down. They can do it remotely. It's no longer planned obsolescence at like 60,000 miles. This should start, start popping up. They can do it remotely. So the 2023 Chevy Colorado and the GMC Canyon batteries drained after a software update. They sent an update to these trucks and drained the batteries for all the owners. Uh, a bunch of owners of the trucks have recently reported this issue, um, and it's possibly caused by a failed software update that affects the infotainment system. The issue has emerged in the past few days, and it could be linked to the over-the-air software update that had been spanning those same days. Uh, GM Authority investigated the matter and reached out to Chevrolet for explanation, but further details have not been provided. So this is still very, very fresh. But the big message here, and I've been talking about it, and I love technology. I, ha I always have to drop that in there. I did it earlier, too, with the EVs. But I love technology. But at a certain point, it becomes intrusive, and I've been saying that forever. And this is an example of that. I have never had to update the infotainment on my cars once. Even when I had like the Kia that had like the old maps and you could update the maps, I didn't need it. I did not need it. And now they're doing the updates over the air and causing issues and now draining your battery. So in the morning when you wake up to go to work, you are SOL. And I don't know that the percentage of people who have jumper cables or jumper batteries is necessarily that high. You might be calling AAA for this type of issue, but it's just I don't need an OEM in my car causing these issues. I cause enough issues in my cars. I don't need the OEMs to do it for me. Uh, GM Tech on social media actually suggested to fix the issue by disabling a specific update preference in the system settings. So it's good that GM gives you the option to disable them. What's bad is they haven't investigated enough to find out what this investigation has already found out, that this is causing the issues, and they need to rectify that. They're going to have to solve that somehow for, uh, in the software. Um, and, and, the, and this is the problem. Like I work in software. I've This is what I do professionally, um, not this on the mic. This is what I do for fun. This is a total passion project. Um but what I do professionally is software, big soft B2B software. And I've been doing that for the last 15 or so years. And I know that with software, you'd never, I don't think I've ever, ever released software with zero issues. We've been able to get certain software. I mean, this is like large scale, scale stuff. But we've been able to release software, very minimal issues, and then get it eventually to zero issues. But for software to consistently be issue-free would mean that we would need all these updates that we get for apps all the time. Because that's what's happening, right? If you look at the notes, you'll always see bug fixes. You know, fix such and such bug. A lot of these uh, like notes that they send out for the releases don't even contain what the bug fixes actually are. There can be so many of them, they just describe it as bug fixes. And you can like reach out to them if you want to know what they're actually putting in there. Most people don't really care. But my point is, take those large-scale software implementations and put them towards your car. 
ooh, this is going to be hard, right? Like battery draining issues. So many other electronics can be affected in a car now through, you know, these updates that might have not been tested. It all depends on how good the testing teams are at GM. That's really what it comes down to. And now I've worked with immensely bright people and stuff still falls through the cracks. It's inevitable. It's just going to happen. It's just the nature of software. There's just so much that goes into the development of software, especially at that level. You're going to miss something. And if you're frequently updating, frequently updating, yeah, you could say it's being updated often enough to where you're not have to deal with the issue that much. But often for release cycles, it's probably like three months. Monthly, I highly doubt you'll get monthly releases, uh, at least with uh, vehicle apps. I don't know what the cycle is for GM, but yeah, no, three months with a battery issue. And I don't know that they put in a function that says revert back to previous version. I doubt they have that in there. They wouldn't want that in there because then everybody would revert it. So you'd have to disable it. But if you've taken the update already, tough, tough, you're screwed. You're going to have to ha keep the car on a tender. I don't know how fast it drains it, but I mean, you're going to have to keep the car on the trend tender. I imagine if you go to the mall and kick it there for two hours and come back, you should be fine. But maybe overnight it drains it. Maybe take a couple days. It doesn't really mention, but I'm thinking it's probably overnight and then it becomes an issue. GM needs to figure this out and keep the updates out of my car. Uh, that'd be nice. I don't need my car to be updated every three months. It's not an app. I mean, even on my phone, I'm like, I, I have to uh, like approve all the updates that are coming in because sometimes there are so many apps on my phone that I don't use. I don't need them, need them to be up to date. If I end up using them, that's when they get put up to date because then I open it and it says there's a latest version of this app. Download that app to keep using this. And at that point, I'd be like, okay, I'll download it and use it. But without that... I mean, I, I don't need these apps to update. I need to get rid of them, really. I mean, I should probably do more cleanup on my phone. But anyway, Elon is tired of getting blamed for all the self-driving deaths. So he wants to share the wealth. Tesla plans to license its full self-driving system to other automakers. They announced that a license to its FSD system... Uh, is going to be avail available to other automakers during the Q2 uh, tw 2023 investor call. Um, they mentioned this. And this is a significant move for the autonomous driving industry because if they make it available to other companies, other companies can improve it. Right? And, I mean, this is good for the industry because... What you're suggesting, right, is all the development that Tesla has done over the years now can be used as a foundation for whatever your company wants to develop, right? Now, licensing doesn't necessarily mean they're going to give them complete access to all the code and how it's handled, but you have to have a decent understanding of the technology if you're going to implement it, which they will probably learn. And they can take those concepts on and, you know, kind of develop things on their own um and work on how to work this into uh sort of the ev infrastructure within that brand now another thing it does is that it makes it consistent across the board 
So now you're thinking, oh, you know, all these companies are using the same full self-driving system. It's going to be easier to diagnose issues because they're going to be generally the same uh, across over many different brands of vehicles. Now, the issue here, though, is that Tesla's full self-driving system has been known to have many cracks in it. It's not ready to be a full self-driving system in itself. We've seen countless videos of people sleeping in their cars that the Teslas are driving. Uh, we did one where uh, a Tesla driver was uh, getting pulled over. The cop was trying to pull over the Tesla. The passenger or the driver was asleep, and they were followed for 15 miles before the passenger actually woke up and they got pulled over. But um, now other companies are going to be able to share the wealth in terms of those violations. I'm curious what's going to happen, um, you know, in the industry for all the EV companies that are not necessarily investing, not necessarily investing in full self-driving and, you know, where they're going to take this and, you know, how many companies are going to use it. Um but I'm interested in seeing where full self-driving goes now that Tesla is sharing a little bit in terms of their IP and technology, right? They're going to keep a lot of things proprietary through the licensing agreement, I'm sure. But like I said, if you're implementing this as a automotive brand, you're going to want to know at a pretty detailed level, what you're dealing with. So there's going to be enough detailed share from, from Tesla to other companies um, for them to be either be able to build their own or find ways to improve it. And they're essentially, even if, let's say, even if the uh, companies purchasing the licenses aren't actually investing in the technology, they are essentially testers for the technology. So now they're going to put it in other cars and people driving those cars are going to report issues, which are then going to go to the OEM. That OEM is going to take it to Tesla and say, you need to fix this. So there's going to be a larger scale of pool uh, of the pool of testers going to be a much grander scale, which should exponentially increase the development of full self-driving. This move, uh, despite... You know, Elon having some questionable moves, at least on the Twitter side recently. Um, this move actually makes a lot of sense for those that want to expand full self-driving, I think, in theory. Right. I'm I'm speaking in theory here around what I expect this where I expect this to go. Who knows if it actually goes in that direction? But there are a lot of things here that would indicate um, a quicker improvement. To the FSD system. Now, into our next headline. Mitsubishi made the mistake. Ford made the mistake. And Nissan refuses to learn. My JDM bros. My JDM bros. Uh, I am sorry. Um, I'm hoping this is still a rumor and not reality. But the Nissan Skyline is set to become an electric SUV. Ford did it with the Mustang, right? The Mustang EV. Mitsubishi did it with the Eclipse. Eclipse crossover. Everyone was up in arms. And now the Skyline is going to belong 
to an electric SUV. The Skyline, which is one of the oldest automotive nameplates dating back to 1957. It's going to go it undergo a major change. It's going to become the electric crossover SUV. It's almost this exact same thing Mitsubishi did. Uh, the development of the Skyline sedan was frozen, and Nissan is reportedly planning to base the next generation of Skyline on the electric Aria crossover or its CMF EV platform, which is expected to debut in 2025. So in two years we might see a Skyline SUV. Now, the new um, sports car is called the GTR. It's not called the Skyline. So the name is technically available. But how are you going to do that? You can name it anything else. Like, I don't think... I don't think people who love the Skyline, who love the heritage of the Skyline, are going to be interested in buying an SUV just because it's called a Skyline. It doesn't make sense. Now, the Skyline EV, the Skyline EV is set to make over 450 horsepower uh, and have a multi-motor all-wheel drive system. Um, but... Even then, it's still an SUV. I mean, I guess if they're making it powerful, cool, that's the least they can do, you know, make it make it powerful. It's still an SUV. It's not a race car like we have known the skyline of yesteryear to be. I don't know, man. It's uh it's just really disappointing. This trend is really disappointing. I would like to talk to somebody who is on the inside of this. Like, why is Mitsubishi doing this? Why is Ford doing it? Why is Nissan doing it now? What is the reason? Be There has to be a reason behind it. I can't imagine someone's in there saying, well, everybody else likes the Skyline, so why don't we just call it the Skyline and that way we'll sell a bunch of them. I don't know. It, or maybe it's the controversy, right? The con- The marketing... Uh, through controversy. Maybe that's what they want. They know they're going to ruffle some feathers, ruffle the enthusiast market feathers by using the Skyline name and therefore drum up some publicity, regardless of if it's positive or not. Now it's in the ether and people can consume it and therefore sell more cars. Who knows? I mean, I think that's a reach. That's a bit of a stretch. But it's surprising that this is the direction these OEMs are going in. It's wild. Like, what's next? You know, I mean, the Challenger and Charger are going away. Is it going to come back as an SUV too? Are we going to have a Charger SUV? A Challenger SUV? I mean, they did it to the Mustang. A Camaro SUV? It sounds crazy, right? Like, if... Before the it happened to the Eclipse, before it happened to the Mustang, before it happened to the Skyline now, if I would have said, hey, you know, they're going to turn the Mustang uh, into an SUV, they're going to turn the Skyline into SUV, you would look at me like I'm crazy. I know I would look at you like you're crazy. Like, no, they would never do that. That makes no sense. In what world does that make sense? 
Apparently in our world it makes sense because these manufacturers are doing it. I'm interested in finding out who else does it. We've got three major manufacturers doing this. That's crazy. Now, if you get enough seat time, you could put the brakes on a robbery. A Caribbean taxi driver by the name of Marlon Tempro showed like really impressive skill behind the wheel in handling a late-night encounter with two would-be robbers. Um, it's a wild video. Uh, it, it sort of reads like out of a Narcos movie. It's it's. I posted it. Um, I had to. Honestly, I had to. So essentially the video starts with uh, two of the passengers in the back and the driver in the front of this like minivan. Um, and they're kind of riding out and one of the passengers reaches over with uh with an arm puts it over the driver and then pulls out a gun the driver turns back sees the gun i can't really make out what they're saying but you can tell he freaks out he's like oh what what, what happened what's that's what's what's gonna happen right and he guns it he literally guns it in the van and starts like manjing down the street he's like manji 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 and then accelerating his hat as fast as he can and the robbers are scared out of their mind. It's hell. It's a hilarious watch. It's instant karma. Instant karma for these robbers. You can see them getting progressively more and more scared. The uh, driver comes to a slamming stop. I mean, there's no ABS on that van. And he's screeching for what it seems like 200 feet. Before he guns it again. Now he's manjing again and manjing again. Now he's not doing the full-on drift, but he's swinging the car back and forth and back and forth at a very, very high speed. And at this time, the second round, the robbers are definitely over it. They start screaming, and they're screaming, Mom, Mom. So it's like something about their mothers. I definitely caught mother. Um, and they're screaming for their moms and they're freaking out. And the driver again slams on the brakes, screeches for what's another hundred feet, it seems, and bolts it out of the car. Now, I know through uh, the information that I've discovered that the driver actually did make it away. But at the end of the video, they all leave the car at the same time, which is crazy. I would have waited in the car at that point, seeing how scared they were, see them get out and bolt because they're clearly not doing anything if they were just passengers for the last minute and a half that the video is um before their ride ended i mean they were screaming they would have bolted but they all got out of the car at the same time and the car continues to move for a little bit before stopping it's it's nuts it's it's totally out of a movie how it happens this is a tarantino movie um you know how it happens, but good for the taxi driver to get out of that, to have the presence of mind, right? I mean, no one gets more seat time than a taxi driver. Absolutely not. I mean, they drive for a living. They're driving a ton. And yeah, they're probably not driving at the limit a lot, but you get a lot of experience regardless, kind of driving in urban areas, especially in a van, of what the limits of the car is. And at that point too, it's like, well, if you're going to try to take me out, might as well take everybody with me, right? I mean, what are you going to do? Like, if you're driving at 100 miles an hour, 
somebody's going to think twice about shooting you, especially if they're in the back of the car, right? Because if they shoot you, that's the end of that car. It's losing control. You're probably going to die. So it makes sense to get up to those speeds. But to have the presence of mind and calmness, you know, sitting in front of a gun to do that, ooh, I don't know, man. That takes a lot. I think it takes a lot of muscle memory and practice to be able to do that ex- instinctively. I don't know how I don't know what I would do. I like to think that I would do that, but who knows, right? In those situations, you have no idea. I think most people would just sit there and crap themselves. Like that's it. It's over, right? It's like, "Oh, put your hands up. Take what take whatever you want, man. Just don't shoot me. Take whatever you want." This guy did not do that. He he put it in gear and gunned it, which was a beautiful sight uh to see that he got away. And apparently, He's a local hero in Barbados. This is where this happened. I mentioned the Caribbean. This happened in uh, Barbados. This has gone viral for the last few days, and now he's a local hero. There's been a news report on him, and you know all this happened. But the unfortunate part is that the uh, assailants have not been apprehended. So this is a common occurrence in Barbados, apparently. A common enough occurrence, occur- according to information, um, but they haven't really caught up to them. I don't know if they'll think twice. Maybe they'll reconsider who they hit up. Um, but there won't be getting into this tra- taxi driver's van anytime soon. So shout out to Marlon Tempro. Good job on you, man, for driving away by literally hitting the brakes on a robbery, having these guys screaming in the back of your car, and recording it for the world to see. Uh, people are going to recognize those guys because this is going viral. Um, and I hope that that means that they'll get caught. But at the very least, they're going to be known as many circles, many circles as the screaming bandits. I can't imagine the reputation on the street is going to survive this video, which is also a small percentage of justice, I would say. We still need to make sure they get these guys so they're not hurting other taxi drivers. But, man, that was such a good watch. I watched that many times because it was entertaining to see them get, like, literally instant karma by a dude that was driving very aggressively and very skillfully through the streets of Barbados and slamming on the brakes and literally skidding. You can hear them skid for what has to be, like, 100 feet. I recommend you go watch it. Check it out on our Instagram. It's up there now. Uh, obviously, viewer discretion is, is advised. Everybody survives, though, so we're good there. But there is a gun involved. Um, but it's nice to see the good guy get away for once. Now, for our last headline, on the heels of saying they make cars for the road and not the track, Subaru teases a sharper, more focused BRZ. Subaru wants to release a better BRZ, but don't take it to the track. We learned, it must have been last week, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. We talked about what Subaru said about all the issues that are happening to the BRZ, and mostly the 8.6 is what we're hearing mostly on the 8.6 side. But Subaru said, we make cars for the road. So we're not going to warranty your car if you break it on the track. Essentially what they're saying. But now, a week later, they're like, 
we're going to give you a high performance model, but just for the street. Be careful about taking to the track. No, they didn't they didn't say that. But they just said we make cars for the road. So, I don't know. I, if it were me, I'm like, well, I would want to take this to the track. And I know it's a smaller percentage of us doing that, but it is the people that sort of drive your social media marketing, right? All these cars comes out and all these people, track guys are picking up the car, taking it to the track, testing it, putting it to its limits. And then we understand what the capabilities of the car is, right? Whether it can be a track car, whether it's good enough to withstand that abuse. Therefore, it's a performance vehicle. I don't know. I guess we can't do that with the BRZ, but we can be fast doing it. So they announced a sharp, literally a sharper, more focused BRZ model, um, and they plan to unveil it this weekend at SubiFest. This weekend has just passed now, if you're listening to this on Monday. So by the time you hear this, it, ha- it could have been unveiled, and the things that I'm telling you would either have been confirmed or completely blown as just smoke. Um, I didn't realize the Subi Fest was that big in Cali that Subaru is planning to unveil the sharper, more focused BRZ. But this this sort of supports what I was saying earlier, right? They're still using the enthusiast market to drive this car, right? And Subi Fest, I, I understand there's you know there's a big population of show cars and street cars here that they're catering to. Um, but there's, you know, the car world is a Venn diagram, right? There's overlapping, um, I guess, areas, right? The show cars overlap with the street cars and the street cars overlap with the track guys. And there's always a segment in there that is representing whatever discipline you chose to, you chose with that car. And so the BRZ is a part of that. The rumors do suggest that the new BRZ model may introduce a 300 horsepower, 1.6 liter engine from the GR Corolla. This is where it gets more interesting because that is a Toyota motor. So the issue, everybody's talking about, ah, it's a, it's a boxer engine in the 8.6. It's a boxer engine in the 8.6. Therefore, there's issues in there. But if we're using a 1.6 liter uh, from the uh, Corolla, now we're in Toyota technology, and it should technically be more reliable. I don't know, though. I don't know if Toyota would be willing to do this. Maybe. I don't know if this would generate a lot of money for them. This, these will probably be very expensive. But we're sort of expecting a BRZ STI at this point with these rumors. Now, these are just rumors. We'll find out. We'll know by the time you're listening to this if it has happened or not. And I'll p- probably post it on Instagram uh, in terms of what the actual numbers are. But a 300-horsepower BRZ sounds very appealing. And for, to have the powertrain be a Toyota powertrain, that's extremely appealing. Um, maybe we can avoid the problems that we're having with the 8.6 now. I haven't heard any problems with the Corolla yet. Not that there are a lot of them out there, but I don't know that the occurrences of it has been significant enough to warrant any news. So maybe it's a better option. If Subaru decides to go this route, I can only imagine that Toyota is also going to go this route. 
it would not make sense for the BRZ to do it and the 8.6 not to do it if the motor is available already on the Toyota side. So maybe Subaru is just taking the lead on the announcement. It's a bit odd. I mean, maybe this is part of the shared partnership that they have. But, yeah, I don't know. It's still a rumor, and I'm skeptical about that rumor. Uh, maybe it's just going to be a tuned version or some bolt-ons, and it's going to be completely underwhelming. But I hope not. I hope they come with something good. They need some better PR for the BRZ because a lot of the things that the 8.6 are doing right now are not doing it any favors. But anyway, let's get into our last segment, The Street Judge. And I will act as a judge to answer the question, are M cars with more than one number real M cars? And I said this at the top of the show, and you're probably thinking, what the hell does that even mean? So, recently... BMW has gotten in the habit of putting the M in front of 340i, 240i, 235i. Um, and so the question becomes, are they worthy to hold the N badge like their real, quote-unquote, real counterparts, the M3s, the M4s, the M5s, M6s, M8s? Right than those cars who are the original M cars. Now, M cars for a long time were associated with sort of the full-fledged BMW M division, whereas these other cars are more of like the performance M division, uh, the M performance models. There are differences. Right, let's start there. So what what are the differences between these cars, the M3, let's say, and the M340i, the M2, let's say, and the M240i? There are differences. There are differences in body styles. There are differences in motors. Obviously, the M division models have your S motors, and your M performance models still carry the B motors with some of the newer cars. But Using the B58 as an example, that's not a slouch at all. And since, you know, the mid to late uh, 2000s and beyond, the six-cylinder turbo cars have not been bad. Even the N55. N54 was a beast of a motor. N55, you know, with the N-series motors, they were all good. And now that technology has been has become these B-series motors, and they're absolutely excellent. There is one in the Supra, and they are doing crazy things with that motor. So in terms of performance in that regard, they're not on par, right? M-Division cars, M3s, M5s, have higher output. Right, they have the S motors. It's different, right? It's there. There's more performance coming out of those motors. But what you're getting out of the M340i and the M240i is respectable, I think, in terms of the power and what you can do to them in terms of tuning them and getting more power. I mean, the it's it's extreme. So you can have significant performance out of these cars. Now, there are things like limited slips and, you know, uh, specific uh, specs for track usage or, you know, suspensions tuned better to be on the track that the real, quote-unquote, real cars, M-Division cars get. 
um, and the M Performance cars tend to not get so much, but they do get a version of that, right? They they still are BMW Ultimate Driving Machine cars. They still perform very well. I remember driving the M235i three or four years ago um, on a test drive with BMW, um, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I know there's a lot of snobbery out there saying, okay, well, M Division cars are the OGs, Therefore, they deserve it. The M Performance models, BMW is really just trying to capitalize on the M badge. And to a degree, that's true. But at the same time, they're backing it up. I think they're putting enough in these cars to warrant the M badge, I think. I think they're making it worthwhile, at least on the performance side of things, right? Um, they, they tend to perform... Very well. On par with the M cars? Maybe not. Maybe not the same feeling. If we're going two to two and three to three, right? And five to five. But they're also not like on the base model. It, it's sort of this in-between segment that BMW hadn't really invested in before. Now you can have some of the M performance, some of that M taste without necessarily crossing over to the uh, M performance model side uh, or the m division model side so it's uh it's something to consider now if we if we talk like unique features and engineering the difference are essentially the same that i discussed right there are you know suspension differences geometry differences um the unique features are might be more aesthetic related right the m2 Let's talk G87 M2 looks completely different than the M240i, right? They're completely different cars. So there are significant differences in those cars to differentiate them and make them look different. Um, but it's not necessarily one is better than the other. I might argue that the M240i of the same generation um, as the M2 currently looks better than the M2. Now, the M2 absolutely performs better, but I think it does one-up it. Even though I'm not too fond of it either, I think it does one-up it in the looks department. So, bit of a point to M performance there as well. Now, let's look at the historical context. And I think this is where most people get hang up, hung up. right? The history of BMW M. And for so long... M existed almost exclusively on M division cars. Uh, there would be like an M tech package or, you know, M performance package uh, that give, would give you some trim things, but, you know, nothing significant. No, definitely no M badges from the OEM type of situation. I, I would say that didn't really take off until like the mid 2000s. That, I think that's when we started seeing it more and more and BMW capitalize on that M. So if you look at the history, the M multiple number cars, right, the M, M performance models, don't represent a big chunk of the BMW history. And I think this is where this is definitely where most people would get hung up. They haven't been around for long. They're the new kids on the block. They're, you know, they're 
they're sort of posing at being M cars. They're not real M cars. I mean, you hear it all. Like the heritage is not there for those cars. But I would argue that it is. Right? I can argue that it it's not. But I think I would argue that it is. The performance is there, right? A lot of the technology that has been learned from previous M cars has made it into the newer cars. A lot of the suspension geometries that were used in the older cars are now making it forward in the newer cars, even down to like the base model 2 series, not even talking M in that case, right? So um, those improvements from previous generations have come into these newer generations, even though they're not on the cutting edge like the M division models would be. But are they real M cars? I still don't think we know. BMW does want you to believe that they're M cars, though. Their marketing approach is to position those M cars, right? The M340i, M240i. There's many others, but I'm sticking with these for now, at least to help the discussion, are part of the M family. Now, they do delineate M division and M performance models, right? So they're not they're not completely trying to put up a facade here, kind of say like this is, you know, these are M cars. You can't tell the difference between both, right? No, they 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 are absolutely owning that these are different segment segments of vehicles for different people. Um, but at the same time, in the marketing strategy, they're saying like you're gonna get performance out of these cars. These cars are going to be more fun to drive. They want you to know that. M Performance is the name they chose, right? Versus M Division cars. M Performance is what they want you to recognize it as. So they're still trying to say, hey, these are these are dope cars. These are performance cars. These are ultimate driving machine cars that you will enjoy. Um, so I think that's the perception they want to drive. Of course, everything points to that as a company. I would want to do that as well, right? So we can't really rely on this too much. But in terms of the driving experience, like I said earlier, I, it's there, right? An M240i is the same driving experience as a Toyota Supra, which is a phenomenal driving experience. There are a couple differences here and there, but what I'm saying, it's the same powertrain. So it, it, I think it's a respectable amount of power. It's a respectable amount of performance. It's a respectable vehicle to take to the track, I would say. Slap some good tires on it. You're going to have a lot, of fun, a lot of fun. Now, the motorsport DNA, not there, right? Um, that's a bit contradictory because I said earlier, right, you're picking up things from older models and putting them into newer models. But I think the motorsport DNA side of it is sort of being on the cutting edge. Motorsport is what drives innovation in cars in a lot of ways. EVs notwithstanding. Um, but motorsport just keeps you on the cutting edge. So having the motorsport DNA means that you'd be on the cutting edge, which would mean, which would mean M division cars. So M division cars are the true M cars if we're going off a of motorsport DNA. But there are a lot of other things we have discussed so far that would I'd, I would favor the multi-number multi cars. 
Now, in terms of the enthusiast and consumer perspective, I think this is where we're going to have, you know, polar opposites, right? I think the general consumer wants the M experience. And if they can have the M experience in a more budget way, why not, right? Not everyone's going to have $80,000 to spend on a GADM3 or $90,000 at this point. Probably paying around the same amount of money on an M2 unless there's an allocation available. You're going to get marked up. Um, but enthusiasts, on the other hand, I mean, we have been saying for a long time, don't put M badges on non-M cars. A lot of people were doing what BMW started doing before BMW did it, putting M cars on E335Is, on 328s. You'll see them on 328s. All models of cars. Not hating on those cars, right? Whatever you got is cool enough, man. You should know that. Everybody needs to know that whatever you have is good. And as long as you drive it and you're proud of it and you're working on it and it's your project, dude, you're good. You don't need to look at anyone else. You don't need to keep up with the Joneses. Have fun with your car. You eventually are going to get into another car. You jump into something else. Enjoy what you have, man. It's I've had a 318. I remember bit of a tangent. Used to kick it at a Denny's with a bunch of friends back in my early 20s. Um, and it's probably like 19. I had a 318i. And we knew the owners of that Denny's and the owner's kids would always be there. And they drove BMWs too. And they had like five, they had all the six cylinders, like five series is what they had. And I said, Hey man, oh, and they saw my car. They're like, Oh cool. You got an E36. I'm like, yeah. He's like, Oh, what is it? 325, 328. And I was like, Oh, it's a 318th. It's a four banger. And they're like, ah, it's garbage. It's garbage. And this is and that and whatever. And you know, people are going to think that didn't really bother me much i'm like whatever dude get out of here you know whatever i don't care my point is you can have fun with any car because i had so much fun with that car that car's the reason why i'm hoarding e36s now that's the reason why i'm racing one that was my first e36 and the reason why i fell in love with the platform and it was a super fun car it did not feel like a slow car. Of course, it wasn't a six-cylinder car, but it did not feel like a slow car. didn't give me any problems. I bought it from an army dude. It was a single-owner car. He shipped it to Germany when he was actually stationed out there, and it was sputtering because it had a bad O2 sensor, and he sold it to me for, I think, like two grand at the time. Um... And I gave him this story about like going to college because I was right. I was getting re getting ready to go to school that summer, and I needed a car, and that was a car I wanted. I wanted an E36, and I got it, and I fell in love with it. Prior to that, I was a Honda all the way with my Honda Civic, uh, but no, it's uh, it became E36 from that point on. I love that car. So anyway, love the car that you have and the car that you're in. Doesn't matter what it is, but the street the, the street judge has to decide. Now, in terms of longevity, right? Now, if we get to, we're talking numbers. If we're talking value, an M division car, an M3, an M5 is undoubtedly going to retain value more than an M240i 
M35i. That's one of the perks that you get of buying an M single number car. You're absolutely, I mean, no matter how you look at it, I mean, you got to look at all the history, and no matter how you look at all the history, that is going to be the case. Now, are the uh, M Performance models, the M240i, going to depreciate the same way that the base 2 series do? They won't, but that's not the discussion we're having. Right? The discussion is M multi-number versus M single number, and M single number definitely wins in the long game. 100% wins in the long game, and probably by a lot in terms of retaining value. It's sort of the, it's it's the, it's the old story, right? Where there's a man um, who's buying the cheapest boots all the time because it's all he can afford, but he has to buy new boots every week, and he ends up spending more money over the year versus the guy that can afford the more expensive boots that are higher quality and last him a lifetime. It's sort of the same concept here, right? Because you have to stretch a little more in order to get to the M division side of things, but then you're able to retain more money at that level. It's kind of unfortunate. Just money rewards money in that case, which is good. I don't know. It's good. It's bad. I don't know. It is what it is. But definitely in the long game, you're looking at M division winning. So, I mean, if we're, so that we talked what performance and modifications, of course, the M division cars win, but the uh, the M division cars win, but the M performance cars, the M multi number cars, aren't that far behind in terms of features and engineering. The new M2 is uglier than M240i. I know that's one example because I would definitely say that the G80 M3 is a lot nicer than the M340i, but the M340i is not bad. But the M240i does look better. So that that one's a toss-up. I would say that one's a toss-up. In terms of historical context, BMW M Division has way more history. They definitely win there. Marketing and branding strategy. I mean, I think you got to give it to the M multi-numbers in terms of winning the, the marketing strategy because they're selling those cars and they're carving out a segment that they weren't in prior, right? A segment in between the multi-number cars and the M division cars that they're now working in that gap, uh, which is like a $10,000, $15,000 discount off of the quote-unquote quote, real M cars. Historical context, M division cars, for sure. M division cars all the way. Um Driving experience, it's hard to say. I mean, it depends on, on, on what you want to count as experience. I count driving experiences on the street. And street driving experience, like I said, I had so much fun in the Supra, which is the B58. I would have that much fun in the M240i. I would have that much fun in the M340i. Driving experience is up there. It's up there on the M side. Is it better than the M models? No, but I don't think it has to be better than the M division models to be worthy of the M badge, right? It just I think it just has to be a performance model because this is not a question of is the M240i better than the M car. It's more is it worthy to carry that M badge. In terms of the enthusiast and consumer perspective, this is split. The consumer is going to say, yeah, this is great. This is great for us. 
we want this. We want to be in M cars at a lower segment, lower dollar value segment. This allows more people to jump into the M fandom and to keep it going forward. I think it's cool. Definitely, I would say at one point, you know, probably when I was younger, I would have said, no, it's definitely not an M car. A true M car is a single number, and it's the only way to go about it. But I think innovation, R&D, technology has moved forward enough to where you're getting really meaningful performance out of these cars. Now, in terms of value, future implications, we already discussed the M division wins. The M3 is going to be hold more value than M340i. But that doesn't necessarily matter, I think. Um, it's still going to retain some value. Now the M performance means something, right? It isn't just some trim. It does mean more power. It does, pe- it does mean a little more fun, um, which is what the ultimate driving machine is about. But what do you guys think? What do you guys think? I mean... Should they, is it a real, it's not a real M car. Or is it a real M car? Is it worthy of the badge? Is it worthy of carrying the M badge? What about the SUVs? I'm of the opinion that yes, they are. Which feels a bit controversial. Although it shouldn't be. But I think I've talked to myself just now and I believe in that they are. I mean, there's a lot of good that comes of that M badge being on those M performance models. Not just the features that it comes with. But that's just my opinion. I want yours. So hit me up in the DMs or comment on whatever post I put up about this. Let me know. Is it worthy of the M badge? But anyway, that is our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. All letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Thank you for all the support. Thank you for all the gear that you buy, all the coffee you buy. At 91octane.com slash shop keeps us going. And also, the easiest way to support engaging on our social media, engaging on YouTube. Um, that goes a long way. Also reviewing wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give us that five stars or whatever it is or whatever your opinion is. Leave us a comment if you want to listen to something else or make sure I'm covering something else on the show or you want guests to come back on the show, which we might be working on. Just let me know. I'm an open book. I love to respond whenever possible. Um, So please hit me up. Uh, I'd be happy to talk. Anyway, have a good night.